This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome. You're listening to New Books in Gender Studies. My name is Shohini Chatterjee and I'm a PhD student in Gender, Sexuality and Women's Studies at Western University and I'm absolutely delighted to be in conversation today with Dr. Seema Shaksari on their new book entitled Politics of Rightful Killing, Civil Society, Gender and Sexuality in Weblogistan, published by Duke University Press in 2020. Dr. Shaksari is Associate Professor of Gender, Sexuality and Women's Studies at the University of Minnesota. Welcome to the New Books Network, Seema. Thank you so much, Shohini. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much for being here. Um, could you begin by telling us how you came to blogging and where Blogistan, the Iranian blogosphere in particular, um, in the early 2000s when the internet looked very different and the so-called war on terror was underway? Um, how did you lead? Um, how did it lead you to research? Um, and um, talk about blogging as a mode of cyber activism, um, which also then translated into finding community and belonging when war um, security and surveillance created anxieties around notions of both community as well as belonging. Sure. Um, So I was a grad student, um, like yourself, uh, when I was doing my research, and uh, I had done my master's degree in uh, at San Francisco State uh, at the time in um, uh, gender and women's studies. And my research was on um, the discursive production of Iranian queer diaspora. So I was already interested in politics of diaspora and gender and sexuality. Um, and <clears throat> when I started my PhD program, I wanted to expand on that and continue. And I became very interested in um, the politics of um, satellite television programs that were produced in Los Angeles and broadcast to Iran. Um, And this was at the onset of uh, the so-called war on terror when um, I saw a lot of, you know, these programs uh, where all of them, um, which were mostly entertainment, had become political and they were very much, um, you know, uh, there were anchors uh, sitting there and just um, talking about a regime change in Iran and a revolution happened in Iran. And this was um, based Basically, when the student protests were happening in Iran at the time, um, President Khatami was the Iranian president, and the Iranian um, diaspora, the opposition, the Iranian diaspora, were appropriating these protests as regime change protests, where 
um, whereas they were really about um, privatization. Students were protesting the privatization. Uh, and, of course, the Iranian intelligence had a, a very severe crackdown on students, and Iranian diaspora took this and basically went off with it. Um, and this is, you know, I became really interested in the way that masculinity was deployed in um these uh, forms of uh, kind of appropriation by these um, uh, television programs where they were kind of saying stuff like, let me sacrifice myself for your manhood and this and that. So that's when I became interested in Iranian satellite television programs and the politics of homeland and notions of gender and masculinity and um, heteronormativity. So I went to Turkey uh, because I can't go to Iran. I went to Turkey to talk to um, Iranians who traveled between Iran and Turkey because there are no visa requirements to talk to them about how they receive these satellite television programs. Um, and this was, um, you know, again, like I said, at the onset of war on terror, Condoleezza Rice had promised something like $70 million of budget for regime change purposes in Iran and propaganda. And all these satellite television programs in Los Angeles were kind of competing over this money. They were assuming that if they showed that they were very much about regime change and, you know, notions of freedom and democracy in Iran, they would receive this funding. Um, at the end of the day, the funding actually was used by the U.S. Department of State to start the uh, Voice of America in Persian um, television program. Uh, Voice of America is a post-World War, basically, Cold War, um, uh, you know, uh, media, uh, the propaganda wing of the U.S. state. And so the money went to that. But uh, before then, all these satellite television programs were fighting over, you know, kind of who's going to get this money and um, all that. So when I went to Turkey to talk to people about how they received these programs, people were like, what are you talking about? We don't watch these programs. It's trash. And one <laughs> Iranian woman, young Iranian woman in particular told me, you know, um, Iranian satellite televisions that come from L.A., um, uh, don't need to be researched. They need to be boycotted. Uh, in Farsi, she said, kind of rhymed and said, "Tahrir nadaran, tahrim daran." So um, she told me, you know, I, I should be really looking at blogs. That's where uh, young Iranians are kind of having more serious conversations. And then I also, uh, at the same time, I noticed this proliferation of um, this kind of. Um, you know, news coverage in international media about Persian blogging and how so many Iranians, in particular Iranian women, are using blogs and how blogs are setting Iranians free, how they're giving uh, giving Iranian women a voice, literally, that was the title of uh, an article, or, you know, uh, freedom will be blogged, and so on and so forth. So I became interested in the politics of blogging, and <clears throat> that's when I started to blog myself. Um, and uh, kind of first for a while, I lurked to kind of see what was happening. Then I started my own blog um, and blogged for a year before. Um, uh, so and basically did online ethnography. I announced to bloggers, uh, Iranian bloggers, uh, who were writing mostly about the politics uh, of Iran. Uh, that's, you know, the, at that point, there were 100,000 Iranian bloggers by mid-2000, around 2005. So uh, I started blogging and kind of through 
um, snowballing. I um, uh, got to learn about other blogs, you know, in the blog roles and all that. And some bloggers gave me links. So I became kind of a popular blogger at that time uh, in Farsi. Of course, I was blogging in Farsi or Persian. And, um, and then after doing blogging for a year or so, I went to uh, Toronto where a lot of Iranian or influential Iranian bloggers lived at the time to do also offline ethnography. I'm sorry about that long answer, but, you know, just, you know, for you to know how I became interested in blogging. And that is when, you know, I also noticed that uh, because really uh, the first bloggers uh, in Persian started soon after September, September 11, 2001. And um, it's not really a coincidence. One of the, uh, you know, first Persian bloggers, uh, perhaps the second one, first one, Salman Jabari, second one was Hossein Derakhshan. Um, he basically said that he started Persian blogging and encouraged others and started a template uh, on Blogger um, in Persian to encourage other people, um, other Iranians to blog, to kind of defy the stereotypes about Iranians um, that were very much produced, um, not just after September 11. Of course, it goes back to uh, the Iranian Revolution, but uh, uh, in uh, in particular after September 11. So his idea was to kind of show a different image of Iranianness to the world, um, and also, you know, he was interested in at that time in uh, creating bridges between um, Iranians in Iran and uh, the U.S. and also uh, what he called uh, a window through which uh, through which uh, the U.S. can look at Iran. Um, so I talk about that in my book, but um, and also a cafe, a, way, a kind of a site of civil society. That those are the words that he used when he started. Popular, uh, popularizing Persian blogging. So, um, and of course, uh, it was through blogging that many Iranian bloggers kind of found a sense of community online and these notions of community while being very uh, attractive, uh, as I argue in the book, were also sites of violence and also um, reiteration of forms of nationalism that uh, were reproduced in online spaces. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. Um, I was going um, through the chapters and, and they were um, thought-provoking in, in many ways. I was thinking particularly about the concept of neoliberal digital citizenship, which you explore um, in your book. I was wondering if you could reflect on how this kind of citizenship interferes with blogging um, as an exercise in freedom. Hmm. Um, I don't see it as interfering because if you think about uh, the neoliberal logic, um, it is very much uh, about uh, you know the uh, kind of uh, the idea of freedom, right? So um, the uh, notion of free market is supposed to trickle down and trickle down to the social realm, and um, the idea is that through 
kind of this kind of uh, free market and the logic of global capitalism, uh, social freedoms will just flow, um, you know, transnationally. So um, the idea of uh, neoliberalism was very much, you know, ideas of individualism and uh, individual freedom were uh, very much prevalent uh, in Weblogistan. And uh, so, you know, it is exactly those notions of freedom uh, that I write about, how uh, ideas of uh, blogging, you know, granting freedom to Iranians who are supposed to be um, trapped in a big jail, and um, also um, notions of um, uh, neoliberal self-entrepreneurship that I write about in the book, about how certain diasporic Iranian bloggers tapped in to opportunities provided uh, during the war on terror um, to basically become uh, what I call using uh, Foucault, um, the uh, homo economicus, basically the economic man who is very much self-responsible and, um, uh, and uh you know, in the context of the uh, war on terror and Iranian diaspora in North America, uh, North America and Europe, um, for many Iranian bloggers who had um, recently come from Iran and uh, did not have many job opportunities and were facing discrimination, um, blogging, in a sense, uh, and tapping into opportunities uh, that were provided by propaganda regimes, by the U.S. Department of State or by um, Dutch Parliament and, you know, uh, all these other... um, uh, so-called democratizing states, um, they tapped into, uh, these bloggers tapped into uh, these opportunities to um, uh, make a living and at the same time uh, produce and reproduce these notions of freedom that are uh, inevitably connected to notions of securitization. Of course, you know, again, as Foucault says, there is no freedom without security. So the idea of Um, individual freedom, um, as I show in the book, is very much connected to increased securitization and the forms of securitization in the name of freedom, whether it is militarization in the Middle East or uh, whether it is internet um, securitization, granting access to Iranian internet users through proxies, uh, that uh, how the U.S. state contracted companies like Anonymizer to, uh, 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 to basically provide filter breakers or proxies to Iranian internet users to circumvent the Iranian state's filtering uh, while imposing its own... Um, filtering and censorship. So, you know, the example that I bring, uh, which is a funny one, is how in the beginning when the U.S. contracted with these private companies such as Anonymizer to send proxies to Iranian uh, internet users through human rights organizations that are all about freedom and democracy and so on and so forth, um, 
they filtered the word uh, as ASS because they wanted to prevent Iranian uh, internet users from uh, surfing the internet for gay porn. Um, and interestingly, they realized uh, soon after that any word that contains uh, the letters ASS would be uh, blocked. Um, uh, including American embassy. So, you know, that's kind of the comical part of this uh, um, securitization process on the internet in uh, in the name of freedom. So I'm kind of going on tangents, but... <clears throat> excuse me, I should probably drink some water. Um, but this is, um, you know, one example of how uh, notions of freedom and security come into an uncomfortable um, kind of tension. You write that um, Weblogistan was widely regarded as a site where free speech could be um, practiced and that it was a virtual rehearsal for democracy in a way um, where Iranian women um, who were thought to have been silent could claim their space. Um, However, Weblogistan did not fulfill its promise because of the very nature of politics in America as well as um, Iran. Could you tell us what this unfulfilled promise reveals about the interconnection between global and local politics and its gendered sort of implications? Um, Sure. So, um, you know, again, um, a lot of the uh, news coverage about Weblogistan was about uh, blogging freeing Iranian women uh, or Iranian population in general and Iranian women in particular. And, um, you know, so from outside, one could assume that first Iranian women did not have a voice prior to the emergence of Weblogism, which is, as I argue in the book, a false assumption. And second, that um, uh, Weblogism was the realm of freedom of speech, which, again, uh, as I show through uh, these uh, ethnographic accounts um, online, um, that that wasn't um, necessarily the case because so much uh, censorship was happening in these online conversations um, through uh, the gendered notions of honor um, and also, uh, you know, the kind of uh, slut shaming that would happen uh, of uh, many Iranian feminists, and um, the uh, the kind of reproduction of nationalist discourses um, and the masculinist kind of notions of Iranianness um, that would basically um, you know try to silence uh, Iranian feminists for uh, embarrassing. Um, you know, a whole nation, or, you know, the other side of it would be the opposition groups that were trying to instrumentalize uh, Iranian feminists um, and uh, kind of, in the name of uh, freeing women, um, pushing their own agendas. So uh, this kind of the global uh, politics or the uh, national and transnational politics that you asked about is very much, uh, you know, playing out uh, in the examples that I bring in uh, Weblogistan where Iranian women feminists, whether it comes to talking about attending soccer games in um, the Azadi Stadium in Iran or uh, their protests, 
before the presidential elections, um, how uh, they are stuck between a hard and a rock place, uh, a rock and hard place where, um, you know, they either have to respond to um, the uh, male, nationalist male elites who basically um, say this is not the time or these are not the issues of uh, the Iranian nation on one hand, and then on the other hand, the opposition groups who uh, would basically consider any kind of political participation in the Iranian politics by Iranian women to be a form of collusion with the state, with the Islamic Republic. So it is between that kind of um, national politics and the transnational politics of democratization and, you know, um, basically interventions by uh, the U.S. that the Iranian uh, women feminists had to negotiate uh, and ha- uh, to navigate basically the way that they uh, talked about um, uh, gender and um, you know politics. Mm-hmm. Um, I also was hoping to understand how Weblogistan became a site of governmentality and how desiring subjects were normalized, as you write, according to um, neoliberal and nationalist discourses. Could you expand on the relationship um, between neoliberal governmentality and the impetus to normalize desiring subjects as exceptional digital Iranian citizens? Sure. Um you know, as um, uh, as you know, in the book, I talk about governmentality in the Foucauldian sense, which is basically going beyond uh, the government of the population by the state that we are talking about, basically, governmentalization of state rather than um, statization of uh, the government, uh, which basically means that the notion of govern- governing the population goes beyond um, the realm of the state, whether it's the Iranian state or the U.S. or whatnot. But we are talking about the participation of um, uh, the individuals themselves in the realm of civil society. So basically, you know, that is how I kind of think about cyber governmentality, wherein civil society becomes very much a part and parcel of governmentality, that is, civil society uh, becomes a site where um, uh, the uh, the individual is uh, normalized. In a sense, the conduct of the individual uh, is um, uh, uh, normalized. Uh, and um, again, if we go back to the kind of concept of governmentality, while um, the uh, the we are talking about a form of kind of uh, uh, um, in a sense a nexus of discourses and individuals um, and practices that uh, focus on the individual but uh, or kind of you know the exertion of power uh, or the operations of power that focus on the individual but have as their goal the normalization of population. So um, in cyberspace or in, you know, Weblogisa in this particular case, I'm talking about how um, it is through these practices of blogging, through basically participation of individuals who are uh, focusing very much about, you know, how to conduct their own conduct and the conduct of others, um, to normalize a particular kind of Iranianness, um, 
And that particular form of Iranianness uh, brings together the kind of very much heteronormative and gendered notions of Iranianness together with these ideas of uh, democracy and neoliberal, of course, notions of democracy and freedom um, to produce an ideal type of Iranianness that is very much classed um, in a particular way. Uh, raced in a particular way, the proximity to whiteness that I discuss in the book, and um, is very much, you know, um, uh, heteronormative and um, and very much sanitized. I mean, even if uh, later there were discussions about uh, queerness or homosexuality, uh, as it was discussed in Weblogistan, um, it was a very much a sanitized form of uh, being a homosexual uh, that <coughs> fit within the logic of global capitalism, Iranian nationalism, um, and so on and so forth. So um, that is what I mean by um, the notion of cyber governmentality um, in Weblogistan, the way that through uh, the proliferation of discourses of um, democracy and uh, and freedom and, um, and nationalism and practices where, uh, as I say, bloggers um, try to conduct their own conduct to fit into this ideal of Iranianness that um, not just bloggers, but the whole population at large, the Iranian population um, is supposed to be normalized according to these ideal notions of um, Iranianness. There's so much in your book that's that's invaluable and critical. Um, you write that Iranians are seen as those who can be normalized uh, and be led on the path to democracy and neoliberal freedoms um, as seen by um, key players in the West. Um, but they're still regarded as disposable by virtue of being um, seen as threats and risky citizens as well. Um, could you tell us about the figuration of the risky citizen and how it relates to not just security, but also global capitalism? Um, and how do you think this complicates um, one re- one's relationship with the cyberspace? Sure. Um, so, uh, in a, uh, again, um, this goes back to the concept of Rightful Killing, which is the title of the book. And um, uh, by that, I kind of um, try to think about the Iranian population as uh, that which is um, neither, um, you know, uh, kind of killable or disposable uh, because um, uh, the the Iranian population is uh, kind of stripped of rights, so neither the kind of bare life nor the kind of population that uh, is seen worthy of living and whose life is worth cultivating through biopolitics. So, uh, but it's at the same time both because, and that is what I mean by the risky uh, uh, citizens uh, here. You have um, Iranians who basically are neither, for example, like Palestinian population, who um, are reduced to, in a sense, bare life, uh, and and um, nor are the kind of population whose life uh, is uh, protecting. But it is exactly through the discourses of democratization that there is, um, according to this kind of you know, uh, discourses of freedom, 
and democratization, um, there is a potential for the Iranian population uh, to become democratic. That's why you hear, for example, uh, you know, many uh, U.S. politicians talking about protecting the rights of the Iranian population and democratization of Iran and so on and so forth. And at the same time, uh, the Iranian um, population poses a risk to the so-called our way of life or to the international community because how fear of terrorism is attached to uh, Iranianness, uh, and we see that as I discuss in the book through uh, policies, uh, you know, immigration policies, through all the sanctions and um, all that. So on one hand, the Iranian population is seen as apt for democratization. And at the same time, on the other hand, the Iranian population is uh, subjected to a kind of pending death through sanctions. I write about the sanctions in this book and how... uh, Practically, since the Iranian revolution, there have been uh, sanctions imposed on Iran, um, and in different times, they have basically become uh, more and more strict, in particular during Obama's presidency, what he called crippling sanctions basically devastated the Iranian population um, and inhibited life-saving medicine um, from going to Iran, you know, the equipment for... um, chemotherapy machines could not be purchased. And then, you know, we we had the JCPOA, the uh, so-called Iran deal. Uh, uh, There was temporary relief for some time, and then Trump came to power, and then again, um, those sanctions were uh, reinstalled and worsened, in a sense, and they continue to be that way under Biden. So the Iranian population is really... um, kind of uh, dying slowly, uh, to borrow from uh, Lauren Berlant's notion of slow death, Um, you have basically, uh, through sanctions, and it's not so slowly, I I call it soft killing in the book, which is kind of, you know, in the name of rights, killing, killing the Iranian population softly, because Iranian population in particular under COVID has been dying in, um, really fast rates, and that is exactly because of the lack of access to medicine or medical equipment. And even if on paper it appears that uh, medicine is exempt, it's not. There is a limited um, number of uh, basically vaccines or uh, medicine that can go to Iran, which is not nearly enough for the 84 uh, million population and um, and even uh, with that limited number, because the transactions have to happen through these financial institutions that will be penalized if they have any kind of transaction with Iran, no uh, pharmaceutical company uh, is willing to basically sell Iran medicine. So you have a crisis there where, <coughs> where Iranians are um, dying. Um, uh, and the sanctions are seemingly uh, in the name of protection of um, the international community uh, or the rights um, of the Iranian people. So it is, you know, the kind of situation where the Iranian population is um, dying 
in the name of rights, uh, you know, in the name of the protection of human rights. And uh, that is basically uh, what I call the kind of politics of right rule killing. It, uh, uh, and going back to the notion of risky citizens, Iranians are seen as those who inherently carry the risk of terrorism risk, um, uh, but at the same time, they are seen as those have the potential for democratization. Mm-hmm. If we um, gender the figure of the risky citizen, then the figure of the Iranian woman protester who is hyper-visible in liberationist discourses comes to the fore, um, who is seen as a threat to the security of the international community. Um, How do you think Iranian women have navigated this reality? And how has their activism um, drawn meaning from their varied negotiations with the state, the diaspora, and with um, Weblogistan as well? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so uh, again, you know, the, uh, as you said, the notion of risky citizen, um, and when it comes to Iranian women's activism, becomes also very tricky because on one hand, um, you have people from, I don't know, uh, McCain to Trump advocating for the rights of Iranian women when it came to the uh, street protests of um, girls of the revolution street or the appropriation of Iranian women's um, movements in Iran or activism in Iran by opportunistic entrepreneurs, um, uh, diasporic entrepreneurs such as Messi Ali Najad, um, who has claimed herself to be the representative of Iranian women's movement. Um, again, you know, appropriations that I talked about before. You uh, basically have this um, situation where um, the Iranian women, again, are seen as uh, those who are victims, who are kind of, uh, as I uh, using uh, Paul Amer's notion of parahuman, as parahuman who are these vulnerable subjects who are at the same time villains, you know, so it's, uh, you have to both protect them in a sense as victims or protect the population or the international community from them. So this notion of risky citizen that I talked about uh, before when it comes to Iranian women, um, uh, uh, you know, it comes together with the uh, good old colonial concepts of uh, saving uh, the, uh, you know, the uh, native women from their men, in a sense. And Iranian women have been um, negotiating this or navigating this for decades now in Iran. This is not uh, something new, of course. And they continue (coughs) to... um, do their work. Of course, it's not easy, and uh, it becomes even more difficult when uh, Iranian women are um, uh, both uh, criminalized by uh, Iranian women activists by um, the Iranian state, and on the other side, um, their cause is appropriated by uh, you know the imperialist uh, kind of. Um, Uh, agendas and the militaristic agendas of the U.S. and uh, the opportunistic Iranian diaspora. So it's, uh, I think Iranian women have, uh, Iranian women activists have been uh, practicing these kinds of politics through their active participation in the realm of the uh, um, uh, Iranian, you know, 
um, political process or <coughs> in um, the realms that uh, are not reducible to what is seen through the lens of uh, this kind of colonial feminism, um, you know, just uh, with this fetishization of hijab. There are many other issues that the Iranian women in Iran are dealing with economic issues to be uh, the foremost concern for uh, working class women and, um, you know, uh, and the family laws and so on and so forth, rights to inheritance, custody, uh, child custody and divorce and so on and so forth that the Iranian women have been uh, working on. And even, you know, as I say in the book, people like Azam Talabani, who some people see as, uh, you know, uh, Islamic uh, fundamentalists, have been some of the uh, most vocal uh, figures, uh, or had been, I should say, about her, um, uh, in uh, in uh, opposing the Iranian state's policies um, towards women, uh, and by nominating themselves over and over uh, for presidency, even though the Iranian constitution um, <clears throat> may um, prohibit them from becoming presidents, but, you know, the ways, uh, the creative ways through which Iranian women activists have been uh, making major changes um, in the laws and the policies uh, shows that they have found ways to navigate um, the these kind of, you know, both the pressures from the Iranian state and the pressures from um, the kind of uh, so-called liberating forces from outside. Um, one of the primary concerns that you raise in the book relates to um, the nature of dissent and what constitutes dissent online as well as offline, and there is um, and that there are certain limits um, to dissent when it comes to counterpublics. Could this question be related to diasporic digital cyber activism, um, gender, and the nature of politics and security um, in the United States? Yeah, um, of course. Uh, again, you know, <clears throat> what constitutes dissent is um, very uh, complicated because, uh, again, if we only uh, focus and kind of obsessed with the state as the um, oppressive force, then <clears throat> the only kind of uh, legitimate dissent becomes that to, in the context of Iran, for example, to the Iranian state. Whereas, you know, um, in the realm of also cyberspace, um, uh, thinking about how cyberspace can be um, or, you know, say internet um, or social media can be used um, to defy the state, uh, in a sense, ignores the fact that, one, the state also uses social media uh, and multiple states in the U.S. or elsewhere, um, and how um, internet can and is a site of securitization, and uh, how um, all of these pose limits to what it means to think of internet as the realm, <clears throat> the realm of dissent. Um, and again, we can also think about how logics of nationalism, global capitalism, um, uh, are reproduced in a sense uh, 
uh, in cyberspace and uh, that there isn't this kind of uh, clear divide between online and offline, that these two constantly form each other um, and are informed by each other. So there is um, you know, this idea of uh, internet as the line of flight or as, you know, where basically um, dissent becomes possible is, I think, uh, if in the 90s that was big in the realm of, um, you know, cyber enthusiasts, I think it has proven itself to be a fantasy or a fallacy in a sense. And, <laughs> of course, um, we can think about in the context of the U.S., um, not just... Um, techniques of um, surveillance that are enabled uh, by um, uh, the kind of internet technologies, uh, but also um, the way that, again, uh, the logic of, uh, uh, in a sense, clicktivism has become so big that uh, just by pressing a button, you know, you think you're making a change in the world, where that's not necessarily the case. This is not to say that Internet has not enabled um, or facilitated uh, organizing for many communities in the U.S. or transnational. I mean, we saw that in, um, you know, during the Arab Spring. Uh, But, you know, we have to take that with a grain of salt because uh, uh, that is just one uh, side of the story. And to assume that Internet has um, enabled dissent or that Internet is where dissent begins uh, erases long histories of social movements, long histories of dissent and revolutions that precede the Internet. So... um, I think, uh, in a sense, uh, to uh, to approach uh, the potentials of dissent on internet uh, with caution uh, is necessary. Mm-hmm. I gathered from your book that the idea of democratic um, futurity as dominantly conceived in Weblogistan um, was heteronormative. Um, do you think heteronormativity, neoliberal nationalism, and aspiration for democracy were co-constitutive? And um, how did they inform one another through um, digital citizenship? Yeah, absolutely. Because, uh, <clears throat> like you said, you know, if um, this idea of futurity in the context of the Blagistan and political uh, you know, discussions around the politics of Iran very much uh, relied on imagining, um, like I said before, an Iranianness, um, an ideal form of democratic Iranianness that repeated and reproduced heteronormative ideas of the nation um, and also in um, its uh, deployments and iterations of um, democracy, uh, you know, the or the practices of uh, kind of practicing democracy in Weblogistan, um, it was uh, very much, again, recentering of, uh, uh, you know, uh, heteropatriarchy in a sense. Um, So I don't know if I'm answering your question, but um, 
this form of futurity uh, or, you know, in the context of the future of Iran, imagining a democratic future on Iran, very much relied on um, uh, heteronormativity. Um, but, um, you know, also, as I say, uh, said before, um, you know, global capitalism, notions of uh, modernity uh, that are uh, kind of produced on the assumptions or on the binaries of tradition and mo- uh, modernity in the context of Iran. Um, but uh, to uh, I think I'm losing uh, my uh, tra- uh, terrain of thought there, but um, the you know a different way of thinking about f- futurity, of course, is um, to uh, think in the context of the sanctions on Iran, how uh, futurity is actually denied to Iranians altogether because there is um, no uh, kind of future democratic or not when we are uh, thinking about a population um, that as a whole is subjected uh, to a pending death um, uh, under uh, the deadly sanctions in Iran. (coughs) So I'm sorry, I think I totally lost what you were asking. But um, so, yeah, uh, the you know, I, I end the book by this kind of rather pessimistic notion um, of thinking about politics, uh, not in relationship to kind of this optimistic futurity, uh, but uh, thinking about uh, those who do not have uh, the privilege or the the luxury of imagining that kind of futurity when their presence is very much imbued with uh, death under the sanctions. Absolutely, yeah. Um, as, as I was reading your book, I was also curious to know how you found community as, as a blogger and a researcher and how did it influence your research and lead you to the critiques that you so powerfully present in your book? Yeah, I, uh, of course, when I was blogging, uh, it was, uh, there was this really amazing sense of community with a group of bloggers, uh, you know, that I was following every day and reading their blogs and vice versa, kind of thinking about um, our, uh, um, you know, uh, through the concept of Iranianness, of course, uh, you know, or the language. So there was definitely this sense of community. But as I say, there is this kind of uh, romanticization of the notion of community that also... Um, becomes very much um, uh, apparent when we think about the forms of um, exclusion and violence that come through the concept of community, that there isn't this form of horizontal comradeship to quote uh, Benedict Anderson's notion of imagined communities, uh, but there are um, the same forms of inequalities of power that exist offline that are based on class, gender, location, citizenship, and so on and so forth, and language that repeat themselves also in weblogistan. So you know, um, I, I talk about a book called We Are Iran, which was about Weblogistan, and it kind of produced this um, 
idea or the image of uh, a community of Iranians that were united against the Iranian state and how uh, how presumptuous that was that you know there were so many fights happening in Weblogistan. There wasn't this kind of united front um, of bloggers and that uh, unfortunately, you know, with the elections in 2005 when Mahmoud Ahmadinejad became the president, the far-right conservative, it was kind of a wake-up call to some of us who in Weblogistan were reading each other's blogs, had this sense of community for the for a reformist candidate, Moin at the time, and then, you know, uh, the the election results was like a slap in the face that, no, you know, we are not the microchasm of the uh, Iranian population. And that sense of community is um, nice and comforting, but at the same time, it, um, it hinders um, uh, forms of violence that happen in the name of community, and it hinders inequalities, and it also uh, kind of... Uh, you know, it's uh, is um, a maybe in the context of uh, Weblogistan in particular, uh, it, it becomes very limited to those who read each other, who respond to each other, who engage with each other, and um, uh, while again, it was hard for me to <laughs> after doing field work uh, offline and online to go back to writing because or to kind of quit blogging because uh, it, that sense of community was very comforting. But at the same time, um, you know, it's, uh, like I said, there are uh, also aspects of notion of community that we need to think about more critically. Absolutely. I totally agree. I think so much of what's written about communities is uncritical. Um, you also write about necropolitics in terms of queer and trans death in the age of queer rights in the West and how trans and queer deaths in Iran are speakable while those in the West are not. Um, could you expand on what this necropolitical um, representation reveals about trans and queer lives and digital aspirational activism? Sure, yeah. Um, as you said, you know, uh, there is um, this kind of hyper-visibility of, in particular, trans-Iranians <laughs> as victims of torture in Iran, um, you know, and torture uh, is uh, basically the the surgeries, um, the gender-affirming surgeries that are called uh, sex reassignment sur- surgeries by uh, some of these human rights organizations that consider these surgeries to be torture in Iran um, are uh, very much kind of hyper visibilizing uh, Iranian trans uh, people as victims, um, and uh, and you know the uh, the stories of trans death um, uh, become uh, very much speakable. Uh, but then uh, when it comes to trans deaths. Uh, of Iranian uh, trans refugees or, you know, trans uh, deaths of uh, people of color in U.S. or Canada or Europe, um, they they kind of, uh, you know, they're not as uh, speakable um, as they are when they happen in a place like Iran. 
And uh, that again shows uh, how notions of life and death um, uh, become deployed and how um, uh, this discrepancy of representation uh, reveals the uh, geopolitical aspect of queer and trans necropolitics that, um, uh, you know, trans Iranians um, who die in, uh, say, Canada uh, when they leave Iran as refugees and come to Canada they're not spoken about, they're not talked about. Uh, the story is twisted again to make it about um, uh, the kind of oppression of trans people uh, in Iran. So this is not to say that trans people, um, in particular, we are talking about, of course, uh, you know, when we talk about trans people in such general terms, um, other notions such as class or ethnicity uh, become very much um Erased uh, when I talk about the trans, uh, in particular trans women's stories uh, that become hyper visible. Uh, uh, they're mostly working class trans people. Uh, like many other places in the world, if you have money, you can have a comfortable life as a trans person in Iran. Uh, for you know, for most people. Uh, <clears throat> But we are talking about uh, working class trans women whose stories become kind of fetishized and hyper visible in um, uh, U.S. and European and you know Canadian media, uh, but uh, you know when it comes to actual uh, value of life, um, there is you know uh, uh, there, there is definitely a hypocrisy there, and you can see that um, you know in my work on uh, queer and trans refugees, I write about how. Uh, trans and queer Iranian refugees uh, in Turkey, for example, um, have been waiting for many, many years uh, under um, uh, the assumption that they're under the protection of human rights or refugee rights um, through UNHCR, but at the same time, their lives are disposable. They don't have access to medical care. They don't have um, access to hormones for um, many people. So, um, the, you know, the, the kind of, uh, it really depends on when one dies um, uh, and where that uh, kind of decides the, uh, the kind of representability of uh, trans death in these uh, kind of narratives that reproduce the binary of uh, freedom and lack thereof, or transphobia and trans rights uh, in the uh, transnational context. Mm-hmm. Um, in your book, you also note that blogging did not bring Iranian civil society into being, but it was merely an extension of a transnational civil society that already existed. Um, could you tell our, um, our audience a little bit about the role Iranian women played as agential actors, um, agential civil society actors, and in what ways did they resist the reproduction of gender exclusion in Weblogistan? Um, sure. Yeah. Uh, you know, the one of the narratives that um, uh, I saw when I was doing my research on representations of blogging was that uh, the assumption that Weblogistan was 
the site of civil society, or uh, it was the first time civil society in Iran, uh, in post-revolutionary Iran, had flourished and where people were uh, having dialogues and so on and so forth. And uh, I spend a whole chapter of the book to talk about how civil society uh, actually precedes or the emergence of civil society in post-revolutionary Iran really precedes the emergence of Weblogistan and in particular post-89, post-Iran-Iraq war. Um, <coughs> there was the emergence of um, concept of Jomei Madani in the Iranian political realm and how... Um, uh, women have participated uh, before and after the Iranian Revolution in 1979 uh, in the realm of civil society. Um, the Iranian uh, women's participation, both in um, you know the political realm and also in uh, the kind of activist work that they have been doing, is an example of that. And some of the examples I bring are. Um, the Iranian women activists who basically had a sit-in in front of, um, you know, the Iranian parliament um, uh, uh, right before the um, presidential elections and the arrest of Iranian activists, uh, Iranian women activists, and their, uh, you know, uh, their very um, firm and vocal a kind of contestation to appropriation of uh, their cause. <coughs> Iranian women have, um, you know, worked very hard uh, since the Iranian Revolution. Uh, after the laws changed, um, uh, you know, to, uh, with a restriction imposed on women's rights in. Iran, um, how uh, they have participated also uh, in um, the higher education, the high, uh, the very high number of uh, you know Iranian women who uh, are in um, the universities and in higher education, and uh, you know the the kind of uh, work that they have been doing in. Um, uh, different realms, whether it's mosques or you know the social kind of uh, uh, social services, um, show that Iranian women have been a part of the Iranian civil society in very active ways since the Iranian Revolution. They're not victims. They're not those who are just stuck at home, um, and uh, you know uh, the. Uh, the assumption that Iranian women did not have a voice before the emergence of the internet, um, again, is very much false. That uh, you know, Iranian women have been very much vocal um, uh, in their contestations to the state and in kind of uh, both providing services in realms that may not appear in our definitions of what constitutes proper politics. Again, like I said, women's jealousies, women's gatherings, where uh, whether it's religious gatherings or um, you know literary gatherings, or so on and so forth, show that Iranian women have been a part of these conversations. That's extremely nuanced and thought-provoking. Um, thank you for that answer. I realize we are nearing the end of this interview, but before we end, would you like to tell us what you're currently working on? Um, sure. Um, if you want me to be quite honest, I'm on my sabbatical now. I'm working on my backyard. <laughs> I'm building a patio uh, myself, which is 
quite refreshing to uh, use part of my sabbatical to do some physical work. Um, and I think it's important to kind of have a balance between the academic work and doing um, other things. Uh, but um, my academic work, which I assume what your question is about, uh, is um, on my uh, second book, which really uh, focuses on, um, you know, queer and trans death. Um, and, uh, you know, some of the articles I have published are kind of uh, um, uh, working to that direction to think about queer and trans refugees and um, uh, notions of killability, uh, loans life, uh, which I kind of introduced briefly in the book Politics of Rightful Killing, uh, a kind of life that is contingent on the benevolence of human rights, but at the same time, it's very much, it can be taken away at any time if it doesn't fit, it doesn't kind of um, abide to uh, the expectations of uh, what it means to live a democratic and free life. Um, So, you know, that is uh, what um, I'm thinking about and looking at also diasporic Uh, Iranian queer and trans uh, organizations and their participation in um, kind of these forms of uh, politics of rightful killing. Um, And I'm also interested in the way that how we even think about life and death and human life and human death and um, what that might mean in terms of abstraction of notions of life and death. So thinking through queer and trans life and death, I also uh, want to complicate uh, what kind of life we are talking about and what kind of death we are talking about to kind of go beyond uh, the abstractions of notions of uh, life, death, and being. Yeah, that's absolutely urgent and and so important. I I remember your um, work um, on queer death um, in sexualities, which, if I'm not mistaken, was published in 2014, and it was extremely generative and made me rethink many of my own assumptions um, about queer rights and politics in the um, in in the West and. Um, I'm just thankful that your book, in a way, became an extension of that work and also explores further um, some of the concerns you you raised in that article. Thank you so much, um, Seema, again, for, for being here and um, for your book and for your scholarship. And thank you for your kind words about that article. And I'm so humbled and um, glad to hear that it was generative and it kind of contributed to... Um, how you think about um, queer rights and um, I very much look forward to reading your work and um, to what you will be producing during your graduate career and thank you again for taking the time to talk to me about the book